Good morning. So did anybody else feel like they were watching the opening of, of the 1970 sitcom, Fill in the Blank? I want to give it up to Drew. Drew made that, and I think it is genius. That is, I think it's my favorite one that we've ever done. That one is amazing. I could just see my grandmother's plastic vinyl couch with the wood paneling, with the shag carpeting, and yes, she fed me ice cream for lunch. So she has a special place in my heart. She'd be like, Jason, what do you want for lunch? Ice cream. Yes. That's what grandma did. Uh, My name is Jason Windsor. I'm one of the student pastors here. I want to welcome those of you that are joining online, and of course, those of you, my friends in Fredericksburg, always happy to be in the Stafford campus this morning. Uh, But let's welcome my favorite guest that has arrived a couple weeks ago, Summer. Yes, Summer is here. Uh, For those of you that are Crafty Mount veterans, you know one of my standard things that I do when it's my turn to preach is I come out here and I whine about the weather for like three minutes because I was raised in South Florida and then I met my wife and raised children in Georgia and I didn't know there could be weather until we moved to Northern Virginia. Uh, I didn't realize that people actually chose to live places where you had to scrape ice off your windshield when we all know there's places in the world that you don't have to do that. But yet, we persevere through those things and we scrape ice. And so summer is here. We don't have to worry about that for like four and a half months. This is pool and this is beach and this is, yes, give it up for summer. And so I, you're going to get, you're gonna get a, a happy version of Jason. And not that I don't put on the show and pretend I'm always happy for you guys, but you're going to get the happy version while the sun is out. And it's, what, 85 degrees in June? Like, this is amazing. And so if you are the proud owner of a middle school student, we will be celebrating summer this Wednesday, 6 o'clock, up there in the chapel and on the fields with our annual water night. Uh, anybody that has completed the fifth grade going into middle school all the way up through eighth grade is welcome. Drop them off at six, pick them up at eight. If you want more information on events, head to the Mount Era events page and check out because some of those deadlines are approaching. With that said, as Brian told you, we're here this morning to kick off the series Family Matters. The language of our faith is crystal clear. God is our father. We are brothers and sisters. Our father leaves us an inheritance Uh, It's family language because we are a family. We're born into a family, and then we're adopted into God's family when we agree that Jesus is who he says he is, and both families share similarities. There's roles and functions that define each family, and when those roles are played out and when those responsibilities are met, the family functions better, and when those responsibilities are ignored, consequences and dysfunction follows, and we all know this. We've all been there. It doesn't matter where you are. You can be in the happiest place on earth. You can be in Disney World. And if someone decides to hijack the family, everyone is miserable. You've been there. You've seen it. You've lived it. You can think back on it. And let me, I'm going to let you in on a little uncomfortable secret. If you're looking back into your past and you can't remember a time when your family was hijacked, guess who hijacked the family? If you're looking back in your past and you're like, that doesn't happen in my family, yes, it does. You just don't realize it because you're that guy. Because we've all hijacked the family. We've all kind of, and, and our family matters. 
Like what goes on in our family? Because in our family, joys are multiplied and sorrows are divided. We should be a place of safety and shelter and unity. And when we don't fulfill our responsibilities, we're not. And here's why I've got to be perfectly honest with you. We're going to talk about one of the major stresses of every family, money. And right now, I just reinforced a stereotype for the vast majority of you in here. If you're here for the first time, if, or if you're back for the first time, you just heard in your mind, the second I said money, you heard, all churches want is money. That's what you heard. I would like to change that a little bit. I would like to say there are many institutions that pretend they're churches that want your money, but we can debate that later. But nevertheless, the stereotype exists that churches are after money. So I find that the best way to combat stereotypes is with facts. So I wasted hours of my life. I went back through roughly 10 months worth of messages from this church, the Mount. I found three instances where we talked about money or giving. One was from me, where I said, we give because of what we've been given. That took three seconds. We'll round it up to 30 seconds, just, just in case I missed something. So for 30 seconds, I did, and then there were two times that John shared two or three sentences on giving our money. We'll call that like two minutes. So in 10 months, we have talked about money for roughly two whole minutes and 30 seconds. And if you want to tune me out, you go right ahead. I would never tell you what to do. You do you. All I ask for is intellectual consistency. When you're watching television this evening, set your timer, and after the ads go two minutes and 30 seconds, and they've talked about your money and how they want your money, you turn that television off, because that television is all about your money. That's all I ask, is intellectual consistency. The next time you go to a sporting event, the 15th ad that plays on the Jumbotron, I just ask that you get up and walk out, because that sporting team is all about getting your money. Whatever you do this morning, I just ask that you be consistent. That's all I ask. I think that's fair. Don't we think that's fair? Because we are going to hit some money passages in Scripture. We're going to come out of Malachi chapter 3, and we're going to come out of Luke chapter 16. But before we do any of that, we're going to pray, because honestly, if he doesn't show up and transform our hearts and minds, then all we're doing is a dog and pony show. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good guy. We thank you for loving us even when we don't always reach back to love you. We thank you for being faithful even though we have been faithless. But most of all, we thank you that you have made us a part of your family. We're thankful that this family endures forever and that we will spend eternity knowing you and loving you and being loved by you. We ask right now as we read the words that you chose to write down that we could know you, that we do know you better as a result. We know what you value. We know what you love. And as a result, we are changed by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. We ask that when the close of this, we live as the people that you have called into the light and we call others that are in the darkness to know the fabulous name that is Jesus Christ. We ask this in the Son's name and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. So as promised, we're going to dig into Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, because this is the money verse. This is the one that gets trotted out. The budget's a little tight, Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. We got to build a new building. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. This is the money passage for churches in the 21st century. So let's dig in. Bring the whole tithe to the storehouse that there may be food in my house. 
Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. And this is how the teaching goes. This verse is read, and it says, hey, when you bring your gift, when you bring your tithe, the gates of heaven open and blessing is poured out among you. So it's kind of like an investment banker pitch where God's plan is the best return on investment. You give him $1, he opens up the gates of heaven and you get three back. It's a give to get strategy. And since God actually owns everything, you win because he can give you more than you ever dreamed that he could. The only problem with this interpretation is it flies in the face of all other scripture. And you have to stretch this bad boy really thin to get it to say. But I understand why we do, because that would be awesome, right? Like I give God $1 and he makes sure I don't have to buy new tires because the tires just magically never wear thin. Like I go to the doctor and the doctor says, hey, look, we're not gonna charge you to today's visit. Why? I don't know why. Well, I know why, because I gave to God. It would be great for us, we think, but we make several very faulty assumptions to arrive at that bad interpretation. The first is that the blessings promised in this passage are financial. Did you see that anywhere? I did not. It says that the gates of heaven will open and blessings will come out. Think of all the blessings we have that are way better than money, things that you would give all your money to get. People that are sick will pay anything to get healthy. Love. Peace, what does peace cost? These are far superior blessings, far better than money. What about the very presence of the living God? Wouldn't that be the best blessing of all? There are many superior blessings, but we make this about money because our lives are about money. Most of our lives revolve around getting money because with money, I get food, I get clothes, I get a place to live, all good things, but I have to have money in order to get them. And then we talk about entertainment, transportation. Our lives revolve around money because we need money to run our lives. And so with that in mind, we approach passages like this and we think, well, it's gotta be a financial blessing because I'm always in need of money. But that's not what was promised. There's another misconception in this passage that taints how we interpret it, and that's the notion of the tithe. When we read that and it says, bring the tithe to the storehouse, we all hear our 2022 version of what a tithe is, that you take your income, you set off 10%, and you give that to the church. That is not what these people would have heard or read in their time frame. That would have been a completely foreign concept to them. They actually had three tithes to deal with that ranged in percentage of income from between 22 and 27%. The first of the three tithes was the sacred tithe. It's the tithe that went to the temple because the temple was the center of ancient Jewish culture. This is where the spirit of God lived. This is where you went to worship. This is where you went to know God, where the Levites would instruct you on how to worship. And this is where you would be made right with God. So you would bring animals and you would bring grain and you would bring wine and you would go into the temple and the sacrifices and offerings would be made to God by the Levites. And a portion of the tithe that you brought to the temple would go to the Levites. Because when the children of Israel or the Jewish people left Egypt, it was in the form of 12 tribes. 
11 of them got land in the promised land. They came out of Egypt, traveled the wilderness. When they got to the Middle East, they got land, land to farm, land to raise animals on, land to provide for their families, but not the Levites. The Levites got a special calling. Their calling was to serve in the temple and facilitate worship to let the people know how awesome their God was, to let the people know what worship was in light of how awesome their God was. This was their calling to the 11 other tribes. We will not forget the goodness of our God. Come to the temple. And so the Levites, because they had no land to farm, because they could not grow crops or grow uh, anything or harvest animals to make clothes or anything like that, they got a portion of the sacred tithe that was brought to the temple. And in that way, the 11 other tribes took care of their brothers that were Levites because they could not work for themselves. The second of the tithes was kind of a travel tithe because you probably didn't live in Jerusalem, but you needed to make pilgrimages to Jerusalem throughout the year because that's where the temple was. You had to go worship at the temple and you have to travel there, kind of like you had to make arrangements to travel here this morning. You had to make sure that you had transportation. You had to make sure that you had budgeted in order to get fuel to get here, which we all know was a significant expense because it, there is cost to travel to worship, especially then when the travel could be many days. And so you didn't just pick up one day and go. You made preparations throughout the year to be able to travel to worship. I liken it to kind of like a Christmas fun. Where in March, you start putting a little bit away because you know Christmas is coming and you plan on buying the people you love presents. So you take a little bit March, a little bit April, a little bit of May. That way when December comes, your whole Christmas isn't on the credit card. They made a plan. They put it in their budget to go and worship. The last tithe was a tithe for the poor. And it happened every third year where they would get together in their communities and they would put some money into a pot that would then be allocated to orphans, widows, people that were down. People that were marginalized in their community would get help from this tithe. So you see, their concept of the tithe was very different than our concept of the tithe. It was possessions to worship God. It was planning to travel to worship God. And it was taking care of the surrounding community. And having kind of put the tithe as they would understand it in its proper place and kind of put blessings in now we're able to understand the most dangerous misconception about this verse. This verse isn't actually about money at all. The blessing is not necessarily financial and the tithe is not necessarily monetary. This verse that we call the money verse is not actually about money. Go back to chapter one. It starts with the prophet saying, on behalf of God, why don't you love me anymore? And they say, no, we love you. And he says, no, here are some of the ways I see that you don't love me. He says, you're unfaithful to your wives. You don't love me if you're unfaithful to your wives. He says, you talk a good game. You talk about the one true God. The temple still stands in Jerusalem. But paying homage to me with your mouth is very different than paying homage to me with your hands. You guys live like you don't know me. You Levites, you don't instruct the people in worship anymore. You don't tell them how awesome I am. You don't teach them the things that were handed down to you anymore. You're, you're far from me. You love injustice. You watch while your brothers and sisters suffer. You love this stuff. 
So he goes through departure. He goes through all the ways that they have shown that they do not love him anymore, and then they get to the tithe, which is very different than for what we understand. This book is not a book about money. This book is a warning. This book is a plea to the people of Israel to quit living like you don't know who God is. He says, you know me, you've seen me. Stop living like all the other nations around you and start living like a people that has been called and redeemed by the greatest good that has ever existed. The passage ain't about money at all. But we make it about money because we wish secretly in our hearts, we wish it worked like that. We wish we had a 300% return on investment because we're all about money. When in fact, this is a call to stop pretending we are something we are not. This is a call to live authentically, to let the truth that God is who he says he is, to let the truth that Jesus has redeemed me, that he has shown me the light, and then to live under the knowledge of all of those things and allow them to affect how I see the world around me. And so with this in mind, we're now ready to talk about money. So we dig into Luke chapter 16. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The rich guy's mad and you get why. Rich people don't usually get rich by wasting their resources or by employing people that waste their resources. So he finds out this manager hasn't been good at his job, hasn't been managing his affairs well, and he says, turn in your ledger, man. You're done. Because I have not made my wealth by mismanagement, and I have not made my wealth by tolerating others' mismanagement. Time for you to look for a new job. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm too ashamed to beg. He took an inventory of himself, which often happens in crisis. He takes an inventory of a position, and he says, no one is hiring me to do construction. I can't put that shovel in the ground, and I am way too proud to go to the temple gates and beg for money. I have been in my master's care. He's wealthy. Probably high station comes with this position. I am not ready to go from here to here. So digging isn't an option. Begging is an option but he comes up with a new plan. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. Smart guy, he solves the problem. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Now this is a debt reduction plan I can get behind. 50% of his debt, gone in a second, which is how you know this isn't on the up and up. Like, he's like, I can see him in my mind in the corner taking out his ledger going, quick, quick, before anybody sees, make this change real quick. It's like all the secret underground candy sales that take places at high schools all across America. Like, we got to make the exchange real quick so that nobody sees, so nobody confiscates my candy. We probably know it's not on the up and up, but I'm going to be honest. 
If somebody that I owe money calls me up and says, hey, I want to forgive you 50% of that, I just say, yes, thank you. Thank you for that. But he's not done. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800, which raises all kinds of questions for me because that's only a 20% reduction, right? So does he like the, the first guy better than the second guy? Don't get me wrong. I'm still happy with 20%. I still say, yes, thank you. But I'm thinking maybe the first guy has a pool and he's thinking, that's my number one draft pick. I'm hoping this guy, so, but I'm not going to put all my eggs in one basket. I'm too smart for that. I'm going to go to this guy, but his house isn't as nice. I probably have to share a room with one of his older children. So 20% for you, 50% for you. And I, I think that we could reasonably expect the master to be pretty angry at these developments when he finds out. Because yeah, the, the guy's trying to provide for his future, but he's He's trying to provide for his future with stuff that isn't his. And so I would expect the master to be livid, but he is not. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. He says, good job. Perhaps if you had been this smart while I employed you, you'd still have a job. But I see what you did there. You took money and you provided a future for yourself. I'm on the same page with you now, man. That's all I've been trying to do since I was born. We now can have a conversation. Master and manager see money the same way. Money exists so that I provide a future for myself. You, sir, have used money correctly. And Jesus explains this in the next sentence. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. He clearly says there's two groups of people and they handle money very differently. The people of this world see money as a way to secure their future. A way to make sure they have a roof over their head. A way to make sure that they have something to eat. A way to provide for this life. But the people of light see money differently. The people of light See money like he says in the next sentence. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. This is the key difference. That in the economy of heaven, money is a tool by which we affect eternity. The manager did well for himself because he got him a place to stay the night. But it's very clear that Jesus says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself. Don't put your security in it. Don't trust it because that's going to be gone soon. It's not as sure a thing as you think it is. No matter how much cash you stack, it can be gone in a second. And upon your death, it becomes somebody else's cash. He says, live in such a way that you're not worried about what you eat, what you wear, or where you sleep as much as you are leveraging it to affect somebody's eternity. He says, spend your money in such a way that when you meet God in heaven, there are people around you going, hey, I remember you. You leveraged for me. You, a person of light, 
but the saving knowledge that Jesus is who he says he is, because you realize that's what transforms everything, right? The manager and the master are only doing what they know how to do. They're only seeing money the only way they've ever seen it. But those of us that say that Jesus is who he says he is, those of us that realize that we have corrupted his beautiful creation with every lie that we've told, with every wrong we've perpetrated against each other, with every act of good that we have withheld each other, we separated ourselves from him. And God, unwilling that this would be the final arrangement, sends his son down to die the death we deserved on a cross, be buried, be raised again, and ultimately come to collect those that agree that he is who he says he is. When we make that declaration, everything changes because now there's a next life, an eternal life, that has far more weight than this life. And that is the life that we as the people of light seek to affect and seek to change and seek to reach other people with. Jesus continues saying, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with very much and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much, reminding us of what we already know. Money does not change us. It just reveals what we already were. If you were stingy when you were broke, you are also going to be stingy when you have a lot of money. Because money does not change you. The transforming power of the Holy Spirit changes you. Money just reveals what was already there. And it takes us and it forces us to look that deception in the eye. Because that's how we justify handling our money poorly. And that's how we justify our greedy lifestyles is by looking at it and say, if I just had a little bit more, I'd do the things that I know God wants me to do. Forgetting the answer to the question of how much money is enough is always just a little bit more. No matter how much is added to you, you will still be who you are. You don't have a money problem. You have a heart problem. You don't need more money. You need the transforming power of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, so if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? The worldly riches being contrasted with true riches or eternal riches. This is Jesus rhetorically asking, saying, hey, if you're greedy with this right here, if your life is all about getting and saving and procuring money, who's going to trust you with the true riches? The rhetorical answer is not me. If you've shown that you cannot be faithful with what I have already given, why would I ever give you more? Business owners, if you've got a bad employee, you do not promote them up the ranks. This is common sense teaching. Combating the illusion, if I just had fill in the blank, then I would be fill in the blank. It's a lie. Jesus, Jesus continues and brings it to a head. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot live in both worlds. You cannot straddle the fence because at some point you will come to a fork in the road where you cannot choose both. There is no and in this choice. It's only or. 
And when you have to choose whatever you are chasing or God, what you will choose will reveal who your true master is. Think back to the teaching on Malachi 3 that goes, if you give a dollar, you get three back. That's not loving God. That's using God because you love money. And if you're a part of this family and you chase anything but God, you probably won't be a part of this family very long because in some moment, in the very near future, you will be issued a choice between what you love and the one who loves you. And in that moment, no self-deception will keep you from showing you true allegiance. You cannot follow the God of this universe and something else. He did not give his life to be conveniently added to your life. He gave his life to give us life, eternal life. It's not overly complicated, but we murky the waters because we want and, but we get or. The most important part of this passage is in verse 14. Because as Jesus gives this teaching, there's some really, really, really good people that are looking in. People that give all the time to the temple. People that constantly remind all the people around them how far they are from God and how much they've missed the mark. These are super religious people. This is the cream of the crop. And they are not big fans of this teaching. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. They didn't like this very much. And Jesus knew exactly why. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your heart. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. He says, you guys love money. You hurt your brothers and sisters. You walk by them in their hour of need. You care more about yourself than you do letting other people know that there's an eternity out there and they're called to it. He says, you put a lot of verses on your social media page and you memorized a lot of verses when you were a kid and you know all the right things to say and your Bible is pristine and is in perfect condition because you never open it. He says, you are really good at the dog and pony show, but you don't love me. And the warning in Luke 16 is the same as the plea in Malachi chapter 3. The greatest good that ever existed is the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Quit the pretense, quit chasing money, and come back to the one that bled that you can know him. This is the call, because that's what he values. It says, what people value highly is detestable. That begs the question, then what does God value? He values you. He values me. He valued it so much that he left perfect heaven. There is a teaching that I despise where we say God created us because he was lonely. As if the all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God of the universe lacked anything and then said, you know what? I need a bunch of disobedient children to complete me. It's a ridiculous teaching. Almost as ridiculous as God needs me to accomplish his purpose. 
the one who needs no advice, the one who already owns everything, the one who cannot fail, does not need us to participate because his purposes are already done. Death is conquered. The outcome is, is not in doubt. It's not hanging on you, thank God. It's not hanging on me. It's hanging on the one who is faithful and true. He doesn't need our participation. He doesn't need us to leverage our time, our energy, and resources. He invites us at our benefit so we can see him work, so we can leave these lives of pretense where we pretend to live as if we know God and actually live like we know God. And this is what it means to be a family and a people of light. That we chase the one who first chased us. And our money is a weapon by which we affect eternity and not a way for us to consolidate our own comfort. What we're seeking here is nothing more or nothing less than radical transformation to value what God values. This isn't us faking it. This isn't us going through the motions and doing right simply because we know it's right. This is us transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we value what he values in our generous because he's been generous to us. That we have both eyes on eternity because that is the life. So that what we do now builds eternal homes in the eternal place for those who say, I know the one who has called me by name. And this is our act of repentance today. That we put both our eyes on eternity and we stop letting money rule our lives. And instead, follow the only one we're following. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for chasing us. We thank you for teaching us. But most of all, we thank you for being patient with us. We ask that you transform our values that you author in us according to your purpose, that we see what you see and we behave as people of light and that as many people as possible come to know you by looking at what we value and see a reflection of you in it and go, I want some of that. Let us no longer put our trust in lesser things, but trust you and you alone, the one who loves us, the one who pursues us, the one who died for us and the one that rose again to give us life. Let us always be unsatisfied with what we put in your place and always seek to know the one true God. Amen.